Amen. Take a few moments as I come to uh, give a little bit of an update on the uh, mission trip, the team that we're sending to Uganda this summer. As many of you know that J.D. Bonner has partnered with a Presbyterian church over there, and a Presbytery really, over the last decade and more. And uh, that one of the churches there wants to plant a, uh, a new church in an area that doesn't have a Presbyterian church. And uh, so they have already bought land. They own land that they want to build a church on. They already have a pastor that they have uh, money pledged for a year or two of his first two couple of years of his ministry. Uh, and they have asked for churches and they have asked through JD that we would come and help them in the outreach to plant a church, which is a Uh, I think a fantastic opportunity to partner with the church around the world in seeing the kingdom literally grow. So we have, at this point, I believe as many as 10 or 12 of you who are planning to go, which is an excellent size team to go. Um, That means money, though, so they're in the process of that. I encourage you to continue to pray for that team now as they go hardcore and sending letters out there. We told you the the youth are also uh, going to Jamaica, and they've put together a team, and they're starting their fundraising. And so I think the youth are going to do some fundraising events through the spring that you'll see. But for the adults, we've said uh, we're going to send letters, and we're just going to ask you if you are interested, willing, and able to support that trip that you can give uh, to that by just putting in the memo line whatever amount you want to designate to help them go to Uganda. Uh, And you can give a little bit every month. You can give one time. We've had people pledge the full amount. I've had, I think, four people pledge the full amount for someone to go. So, uh, so we're, we're moving in that direction and just keep praying that the Lord will provide. Um, and one last thing even on that is we've been, I met with the architect Friday for a, a couple of hours looking at some initial designs. It was pretty exciting as we, you know, we still got work to do. There's a bunch of fine tuning, but one of the things that we talked about, apparently it, it, it's probably only about thirty or $40,000 to build a church on that property in Uganda. And I am excited to consider us raising that money at the same time as we raise funds and move toward uh, our own uh, building of a church, that we would build that church in Uganda at the same time. Something to pray about and to think about. It's a little bit down the road, but I think it would be phenomenal for us to, uh, to not just think about ourselves, but to at the same time be building the church in Uganda. We are this morning in First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Last week we, were, we, we did the first sentence or the first phrase, uh, looking at Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I, I wanted to do a little bit of an introduction, who is this Peter, and to know a little bit about Peter as we enter into this letter, where is Peter writing from in his own walk with Jesus as, a, as an apostle, and what that means, and so we spent time, if you missed that, it's online, you can go and, and listen to that. Um, but this morning we are pressing into the rest of verse 1 and verse 2, you know, and some folks think, you know, you did like a phrase last week, and this week it's less than two verses, and next week it's three verses. You know, the week after that I think it's like five, so we're going to pick up some speed. But as you'll see as we get into this, Peter's going to make us work this morning in these two verses. He's going to make us work. So I only bit off two because they they are so rich and full of uh, meaning uh, that we need to unpack and to chew on. And so work with me here this morning. We are in First Peter 1, the first two verses. Hear the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and a sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we gather this morning as your church. We gather to sit at your feet and to hear from you. We gather to know the truth and to love it. We also gather to know the truth and its power and to be changed by it. We long for you to work in our lives and to speak to our souls and to transform us. That we might be more like Jesus. We ask and we pray as we come in Jesus' name. Amen. When I go backpacking, I'll start weeks and sometimes months ahead of time pulling out maps and studying them and looking at the, at the topography, where, where we want to go, looking at how long the trails are and because I need to figure out where we're going to start and if we're going to park a car and get out and get home in the right time. We need to figure out the, you know, where am I going to go in, where am I going to go out. And I look at the, I look at the elevation. Am I going to have to climb you know, 2,000 feet? Am I going to have to? Sometimes I'll plan a trip so I, I go down 2,000 rather than up 2,000. Or you know, we look at where the water is, you know, where the camping sites are and the shelters and that kind of stuff to get a lay of the land. You, know, you get this really is a big picture of the start and the end and, and sort of the topography and, and what's, what's in between. We need a big picture. And in some ways, what Peter does is he jumps into his book here, his letter uh, that he writes to the church. He starts out by backing up and giving that bird's eye view to, from you know, 2,000 feet. He gives you that bird's eye view of, of who he is writing to and what it is that he's going to be unpacking as he jumps in through the rest of his letter. He starts out by writing... A greeting. And really that's all the verses 1 and 2 are, are the greeting. It's who he's writing to. But how he describes who he's writing to is really helpful for us as we understand it and own it for ourselves. Because he writes to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion. And he writes to these folks who are in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These five names that he gives are actually four Roman provinces Pontus and Bithynia are really one um, province, but one is to the east. And some say that, that, that they're in this order because it's the order that the letter would go. You'd come in at Pontus and go down through Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and then back up in, to Bithynia next to where he came in and go back out so that the letter would travel through this area on this path. And so this letter gets written to this group of churches. They're all in Asia Minor. Is modern-day Turkey, that thumb that sticks out into the Mediterranean below the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. It's the country of Turkey. And in there, these churches that he's writing to in this whole area, in there would be included all of the churches that Paul planted in his first missionary journey. Because he makes, if you know Paul's journeys, his first journey, he just made a loop through Asia Minor planting churches in places like Lycia, Derbe, Iconium, Colossae, Ephesus are in there, um, all of those names. But also in this whole area are all the churches that are mentioned in the, uh, the, the first couple of chapters of Revelation, Pergamum and Smyrna and, and Thyatira and all those churches he wanted. They're all there in Asia Minor. So this is a letter that would have gone to all those, you know, this whole group of churches uh, that are planted here in the first decades of the, uh, the planning of, of the church in the world. And so he writes to this group of folks and he calls them a whole bunch of things. Right? He calls them first elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he says that this is according to, after naming where they are, your elect exiles of the dispersion according to 
three things. The foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and His sprinkling by His blood. I want to unpack each one of those because each one, that's why I say we're not going to get out of here, out of these verses because we need to look at each one of those to hear what Peter is saying, what God is saying to his church. And so elect, he starts with that as his first word as he uh, addresses the church. You know, and if he were writing a letter to us, he would start the same way. These are not special churches in that regard. He would write to us, to the elect church in Hickson. The word elect there, if you were to read through the New Testament, there are many places where you'll read about, like in uh, Colossians 3, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. You know, put on Christ and live this way. But he calls them the chosen ones. The word being translated chosen there is the same word being translated as elect here. In other words, elect and chosen is exactly the same. I have no idea. These are, these are the mysteries of the translators. That you always wonder, why did they translate it like that? Why in Colossians 3 do they use the word chosen, but in 1 Peter 1 they use the word elect? Why not use chosen all the way throughout? Why not use elect all the way through it? They, they, they mean the same thing to elect someone is to choose them by, you know, by selecting them. You know? And so anyway, so this choosing, so he's writing to God, to the chosen ones, to the chosen people in these areas. Now we know that this is what the Old Testament referred to God's people. Most of us, when we think of Israel, there's many times that you would say, Israel, God's chosen people. Well, it's the exact same thing here as he writes, as, whether it's Paul, to, as, as his chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Um, you know, and here to, his, to the chosen ones in Pontus and Galatia and all these areas. And so you have this, what is applied to Israel in the Old Testament, being applied to the church in the New Testament, as the, he's writing to God's chosen people. Grudem says it this way, it's in your bulletin under the first point, that first quote by Grudem, it, this word chosen as it's used throughout the New Testament and the Old, but in the New, always refers to persons chosen by God from a group of others who are not chosen, which is the whole point of choosing. And they're chosen for inclusion among God's people and recipients of great privilege and blessing. So it is as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly blessed, as the recipients of all this blessing that he calls us to do and to be whatever else. And so as he writes to the church, before he says one thing he wants you to do, or uh, as he says anything else, he wants you to understand it is as God's chosen ones that he writes to them and he speaks to them and speaks into their lives. But they're not just elect, he says they're elect exiles. All my study says that's a bad translation. Exile is not a good word right there. Because they're not really exile. When you think of an exile, right now there are people all over the world. I think of, I think of people who have been displaced or people who have been sent out. Like you've been bad, and so you're being exiled. You know, John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Exile, you know, it's when you're forced to go somewhere you don't want to go, and it's like a punishment. And that's not what is being described here. The word being translated exile actually means something like a temporary residence in a foreign place. Like for us, it would be a resident alien. I, I lived with a resident alien all the way through college. My roommate was actually a, a British citizen. But he lived in the States, and he had been here for about 10 years. His parents were British citizens. He was a resident alien, and he lived and worked and schooled here. But he had a British accent. He looked British, and he acted British a little bit. You know, he, was, but he, he was a resident alien. He was a 
pilgrim in a foreign land. You know, somebody was here for a period of time, but he was from somewhere else. That's the word that's here. We're sojourners. Sojourners is the way some translate it. It's actually a really good word. It's just not a word we use. You know, like, when's the last time you used sojourner? Um, <clears throat> I want to go sojourn somewhere. You know, we just don't. We, we're temporary residents. We're resident aliens in a foreign place. And so he writes to the elect aliens, uh, foreigners in a, in a, in a, a residence in a foreign place of the dispersion. The dispersion is a technical word that was used in the, in the, in the Old Testament and into the New Testament times that referred to God's people scattered throughout the nations. You know, in the Old Testament, Israel was exiled at times, and they were taken into foreign places and dispersed in the world. But they, um, and this word came to, to describe exactly that, those who were in dispersion. So if you were Jewish and not in the land of Israel, you were in the diaspora or in the dispersion. You were scattered out there somewhere in the world. Now this letter is clearly, the question that some people wrestle with as they do this, because he's writing to God's chosen people, exiles of the diaspora scattered in the world. Some people say this is a letter that must be written by Peter to Jewish Christians. And only Jewish Christians. And it's not addressed, it's not addressed to, to Gentile believers because of the language that he uses. Right? But I want to say this, it is clearly a Christian letter. So is it written to all, all Christians or is it just written to Jewish Christians in some way? And I'm going to say that it is absolutely written, not only then as now, but even then as Peter writes it, it is written to everyone. This is not written to uh, Jewish Christians only. Why? For at least four reasons. Let me, let me say this, because I think what he is doing is he is taking Old Testament uh, language that applied to Israel, and he's applying it to the church. So that we are God's chosen people who are sojourning in a foreign land and scattered among the nations, and as he goes on. And, and there are four reasons for that. And the first is because Peter knows that the churches of Asia Minor are mixed congregations. That thumb of Turkey is, you know, 99.9999% Gentile. Yes, there are some scattered Jewish population but it is largely a Gentile area. Paul goes and plants churches there. He starts in the synagogue. He gathers what he can, but then he goes out and he preaches and he builds a church. That They're mixed churches, and they are as much full of Gentiles as they are full of, of Jewish converts. And it would be very odd to write a letter to all these churches over this vast area that are full of Gentiles. We had a congregation like this, and there were 30 or 40 you know, converted Jews, and the rest of you are, are, are Gentiles. It would be very odd to write a letter to this church and say, I'm going to talk to these 30 or 40. You know, you guys talk amongst yourselves. Or, you know, it would be a very, very odd thing for him to address some portion of the popu- population and ignore the others. And we know that they're full of them because Paul comes back from his missionary journey. It's there in your bulletin under the first point still, Acts 14. And he says that when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared that all that God had done And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In chapter 15, they actually had to convene the first church council and gather leaders from all over. What are they going to do about the fact that their churches are full of Gentiles? The Gentiles were being converted. And and what are we going to do? Are we going to make them become Jews? And so those whole chapters, we know these, these churches are full. 
of Gentile converts. In section, he uses expressions in the letter that would sound very strange if he were writing to Jewish converts. Even though they're in the letter, I've put them in your bulletin, 1 Peter 1.14. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's something you say to a Gentile, not to a Jew. Or at least, you know, he would not, it's not their former ignorance. They had the prophet. I mean, what do they say? We've got the prophets. We've got the law. We've got the, you know, we've got the word of God. We've got the promises and we've got the covenants and we've got, they've got everything that we didn't have as Gentiles. And so 1 Peter 1.18, he goes on, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Which again, isn't something, that's something you would say to the nations, not to, to Jews who were, again, had God's law and God's ways and God's words. First Peter 2.10, he applies to them this statement from Hosea, once you were not a people, but now you are a people, the people of God. Right? So, he is, so what he is doing is he is including the Gentiles into it and applying all that Old Testament language and, and identity and understanding to Gentiles. He's not segregating, you know, which would be the other reason I would say that I don't believe that he's doing it from here is because if he were, he would be creating really second-class citizens. There'd be the Jewish converts, and I'll write to you a letter like this and say all these things, but everybody else would be sort of second-class citizens in the kingdom. Plus, the rest of the New Testament does the same thing. Jesus does it as he talks to, to the church as God's chosen people. Abraham, Paul does it as he speaks of the church as not only as God's chosen people, but he says, if you are in Christ, you are a child of Abraham and an heir of all the promises. Right? He takes those Old Testament understanding of our identity and he applies it to the whole church and he says, that is who we are as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, heirs of the promises, children of Abraham. So what we have here is a transference of this Jewish identity, this Old Testament Israeli identity applied to all who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a son of Abraham. You are a child of Abraham. And so you are, you are God's chosen people, right? Sojourners, pilgrims, in a foreign land, scattered throughout the nations, as this would go from church to church to church. And so Peter is writing to all believers in all the churches planted by Paul that are full of these folks. And then what follows in verse 2 is just one long description of these people, how this came to be, how you came to be this chosen, sojourning pilgrim people among the nations. How does this come to happen? This growing church throughout the at that time, the, the empire of Rome, but now the world. And he says, it is according to these things, to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and a sprinkling by His blood. And this is where he backs up and says, let me give you the big picture. You know, you, as he writes to the people of God and gives them this identity. Let me give you the big picture. You know, from eternity past in the foreknowledge of God the Father right down to the obedience of faith to Christ and salvation and the sprinkling and participation in His blood. This, this picture of who you are according to what God has done from eternity past till now when you belong to Him by faith. God's pilgrim church 
chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8, 29 and 30, isn't it? When he says that we are uh, predestined according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And those he predestined, he called, and those he calls, he sanctifies. Right? That's what Paul says in Romans 8. And I know when you start using words like chosen and predestined, you know, most of us are pretty comfortable, but there are a few who might get a little nervous. But the, one of the things is just this. The Bible uses those words. The Bible says, applies them to Old Testament Israel and applies them to New Testament church and comes right out and says, you were predestined before the foundations of the world. You were chosen in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 1.11, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this was done. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so we have to come to understand what does that mean? The Bible teaches it. So we have to understand what does it mean. Now some folks, when they think about God's foreknowledge, and it's only a word that's used in a few places in the entire uh, New Testament. Uh, and in the places that it does, it is in that Romans 8 to 29. You know, f- uh, those whom he uh, foreknew, he predestined. You know, and that's what we have right here in that same kind of usage of the word, that, that, that we are elect, predestined, according to the foreknowledge of the Father. And so the end question becomes, what is this foreknowledge? And some folks, to avoid what I think is the very clear teaching of Scripture of God's sovereign choice and election of a people before the foundations of the world to be included in Christ, those whom he gave to the Son. Jesus talks about those whom the Father has given to me over and over again. To avoid some of that clear teaching, I believe some folks take this idea of foreknowledge to say that God simply looks down the corridors of time to see what people are going to do. And when he sees what people are going to do, that then he chooses and elects based on what he has seen we're going to do. But the problem with that, and just to make, in a sense, short work of it, is that God doesn't really choose anybody in that scenario. He simply affirms other people's choices. And that's not the sense in which this is given in the Scripture when it talks about that those whom God foreknew, He predestined, and those He predestines, He calls, and those He calls, He sanctifies, and those He sanctifies, He glorifies all to the praise and the glory and the honor of His name. doesn't sound like God is simply affirming other people's choices. There's nothing in the text that gives that idea that that's what He's doing, simply looking to see what other people are going to do rather than doing what he does. And it's not what the verse says. If you look at one eleven, it's in your bulletin there, under the second point, Ephesians one eleven, It says, you have been predestined according to, not what he sees we're going to do some point in time, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. It goes on to say, to the glory and the praise of his grace. So we're not predestined according to what God saw, but what God planned, according to his own counsel and the purpose and will. And so this foreknowing of God that we see here in the scripture, let me give you a couple of verses where it gives us some sense of how we are to understand that word. And the first one is there in your bulletin, Amos 3.2. God says this, you Israel, have I known of all of the peoples families of the earth and so the question becomes as he says I of you only have I known do I know so this way that God knows things 
or even foreknows things. And the question is, of all the families of the earth, God looked at the earth and he didn't see any other families. He only saw Israel. Right? Of all the families of the earth, I only, knew, I only knew you. And when he says that he only knew Israel of all the families of the earth, he is saying, you only did I establish a relationship with. You only did I choose as my people. Of all the families of the earth, you only belong to me. Belong to me because I called you. He calls, we just read the promise, and as he calls Abraham out sovereignly and, and, and establishes him in, in a new land as his person. Acts 2.23, we read this, it's there in your bulletin. It says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. This is one of the only other places that foreknowledge is used in Scripture. We're going to look at one more. It is tied after this whole idea that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge. It's linked to definite plan, and definite plan comes first. And the other thing is, we all know, God did not look down the corridor of time and say, oh, I see that Jesus is going to come and that he's going to be born, and that he's going to live a perfect life, and he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to be murdered by men. Oh, well, I'll make that my plan. Right? We know God sent the Son. Right? It was according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. In other words, those two things go together in such a way that it has to do with his counsel, his plan, his purpose, his saving purpose, his definite plan and saving purpose not just a bare knowledge of what's going to happen, as if God lives that way, exists that way, seeing what out there is going to happen so that he can respond to it. But what clinches it for me is in 1 Peter 1.20, when he says this, it's the same author, same book, same chapter, he says this, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world and he was made manifest in these last times for you, right? That he, Jesus, was foreknown. We have to understand, again, that Jesus, God doesn't look down and just foreknow what Jesus is going to do, right? He was foreknown. That means he was chosen, and they planned together, and they purposed together. It was in the eternal plan of God, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, that Jesus would be and do all that he did. And so if Jesus is foreknown in that way, it's the same way in which we are foreknown according to his definite plan and saving purpose. So foreknowledge, I have it there somewhere in your bulletin under that point, is that special taking knowledge of a person which is God's electing grace as he sets his love and his purpose on us from all eternity. God's foreknowing is the same as his ordaining and purposing and choosing and electing. So we are his chosen people, pilgrims scattered in the nations according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge from before the foundations of the world. And he says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is that word that simply means to set apart. It's simply to set apart for God. So this word then is, is used throughout the New Testament in the past, the present, and the future tenses. There is a sense in which we were sanctified, a sense in which we are being sanctified, 
And someday we will finally and ultimately be sanctified. In other words, we're being set apart and made holy. There's a sense in which that was done. On the day that Christ died for us and we were included in him by faith, we were sanctified as we were set apart as God's people. We came to belong to him where he could address us as God's chosen ones, his, his pilgrims scattered throughout the world. In that sense, you're already sanctified, done. And another sense is that, that, that his people that he has set apart uh, throughout the world this way, he's working on us. And so there's another sense in which we're being sanctified. And it's an ongoing process, a process of making us more and more like Christ. But you and I know that that's not going to be finished in this world. We're not going to be made perfect and holy in the way that Jesus is until the day that we see him face to face and we will be like him. And so someday I will be done with sin I will be done with all of the faults and failings of this world and I will be fully sanctified, holy in Christ. And so it's done and it's being done and it will be done someday. And as it's used here in this text, this is the it's done. It's a completed work. It's something that God already did in and through Christ. It's a single past completed work of the Spirit, this sanctification of the Spirit or in the Spirit that happens when you came to faith and when you came to belong to Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians 1-2, it's there in your bulletin. Paul says, as he writes to the church in Corinth, he says to the church of God that is in Corinth, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Past tense, done deal, already happened in Christ. And that's who he's writing to, those who are already sanctified in Christ Jesus, done deal. We belong to him, we belong to God, now and forever. And he's working on me, and someday he'll finish it, but I already belong to him. And it's in that sense of this sanctifying work of the Spirit. And this is important because we see that it's it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in this sanctifying work of the Spirit, but we see that that precedes and leads to and is the cause of obedience to Jesus Christ and a sprinkling with his blood. It's what brings us into the obedience of Christ and a participation in his blood, in his work. So before a person does one thing, before a person believes one thing, the Spirit works, regenerating, sanctifying, bringing us to obedience to Christ. And so when we say obedience to Christ, will you say, well, I'm supposed to obey Christ today. Well, you know that your obedience to Christ today as you seek to obey him started somewhere. It started in, the, in, in an act of obedience at the very beginning. There had to be a first one. And the first act of obedience that the Bible speaks of when we come to the obedience of Christ is repentance and faith. That's where it all begins. See, a lot of us like to think of the gospel as, a, as, a, as an invitation Right? We think that Jesus invites us to faith. And there's a sense in which that is true when he says, come to me, and there are, there are invitations. But the gospel itself is a command. When Jesus is there in your bulletin in Mark 1.15, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Right? That repent and believe is a command that he calls us to respond to. And so in 1 Peter 4.17, later in this same book, he says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? The work of the Spirit. 
changes our hearts, brings us to obedience, that it brings us to repentance and faith, to obedience that brings a sprinkling by His blood. Most of us would know that that sprinkling that He refers to is another Old Testament picture. It's an Old Testament picture of Israel. It's a covenant making. It comes from that passage in uh, Exodus 24 when, when God makes covenant with Israel and he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice on the book of the covenant and on God's people. And that's how he made covenant, on the book and on the people. And now he says in the new covenant, whenever we take communion, this is the new covenant in my blood. Right, so we come to obedience to Christ and to a sprinkling that is into a covenant with God covered by the blood of the Savior. Let me just make a couple of quick applications. This is a rich and powerful, and, and as you see, it's full. Each one of those could be a sermon. And I thought about that. I didn't know how you guys would stand up for me preaching a whole sermon on each one of those ideas and, and unpacking it biblically because I can start in the Old Testament, take it into Peter and show you in the rest of the New Testament where it is. And each one of those things is a sermon by itself. And I know that I pushed you hard by putting it all into one thing to say, what does it mean that we are God's chosen pilgrims scattered in this world and that we are that according to his foreknowledge before the foundations of the world that we would be sanctified by that work of the spirit that brings us to obedience to Christ and and an inclusion and a participation in his blood as his people but it is so rich this is just the greeting this is how God greets his people this is who you are as my people Right? This, there's an identity here. Whatever else Peter has to say in this book, he says, this is who I'm talking to. I'm talking to you as God's chosen ones. According to his foreknowledge before the foundations of the world, whom the Spirit has definitively sanctified and brought to the obedience of Christ and is sprinkled by his blood and brought you into the new covenant by his grace. This is who I'm talking to. You, people of God. There is a, an identity here. There is a confidence here. There is an encouragement here. Because he's writing this letter to people who are under fire. He is writing to people who are struggling. He is writing to people who are being sanctified in that process. And, it's, and, it, and he even describes it as going through the fires of refining. And life is hard, and it is hard. We we are under the fires of temptation. We are under the fires of suffering. We are under the fires of, of persecution at times. And he writes to these people, and he says, before I tell you anything of what it means to be holy, because he is holy in the midst of a, in a broken world in which you feel like you're under fire, you need to know, I address you as my chosen ones. Yes, you're pilgrims, and you're scattered, and but I knew you before you were born. And it is by the power of my spirit that you have come to faith and come to know me. And I have sprinkled you with the blood of the Savior, with the blood of Jesus. And I will finish what I have begun. And let me talk to you about your journey. Let me talk to you about your suffering. Let me talk to you about what you're going through. But I do it to my people. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you have loved us and saved us in your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have, um, from before the world began, known us, chosen us. In time, you have poured out your spirit and sanctified us. 
changed our hearts, given us new hearts, brought us to faith, sprinkled us with the blood of Jesus, and made us your own. Father, I pray as we go from here this morning that we would hear you address us in this way. That we would know ourselves to be yours from eternity past to the day you take us home to finish that great work which you have begun. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.